Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. The United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House pass bills that close loopholes in the background check system. These are bills that receive votes of both Republicans and Democrats in the House. This is not and should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives. And we have to act. 41 Americans, 41 Americans have been shot in the past week in mass shootings. 41 Americans have been shot in the past week in mass shootings and killed. Seven mass shootings have happened in the last weeks. Shootings were separate and horrifying events. These were all different ones in Georgia, Stockton, California, Gresham, Oregon, Houston, Texas, Dallas, Texas, Philadelphia, and then in Boulder, Colorado last night at a grocery store. In Georgia, six women of Asian descent were slain, and we were appropriately horrified. Then last night in Boulder, 10 people were gunned down, ranging in the age from 20 to 65 years old. One was a police officer with seven kids. It is hard to keep up with the carnage, but this is the norm in the United States of America. There is one thing that ties all of these events together, particularly the two worst in Georgia and Colorado. In both Georgia and Colorado, a young man walked into a gun shop and legally purchased a weapon. Let me, re let me rephrase that. A young white man walked into a gun shop and legally purchased a weapon, a handgun in Georgia, reports of an assault-style rifle in Colorado. Then within hours in Georgia of that purchase and days in Colorado of that purchase, the young men took the weapon and used it to murder people, innocent people, helpless people, in a vengeance, in a hate, hateful way, what should be designated as a hate crime. People they had never met, whose lives they thought they had some right to sacrifice. We keep having the same conversation. There is hate, there is anger, there is racism, there is misogyny, and there is mental illness. They are all parts of this toxic pattern of violence. And guess what? That all exists globally. They're each on their own wrongs we must denounce, but none of these would produce the ongoing death toll were it not for the United States' role with the NRA. Guns more easily available than in almost any other nation on this planet. Guns more lethal and more concealable, concealable than most other countries allow in regular sale. Guns being sold to people who, by their own descriptions of their families, suffer from instabilities that call for treating them, not arming them. We need to come down hard and fast on these crazy gun laws that leave loopholes for all of these sales. Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, has done a great service helping push the NRA into bankruptcy. I don't know if you know that. They are weak right now, the NRA. And the people are strong. They had just passed something. Uh, they just fought off restrictions in Colorado. Colorado, where Lauren Boebert, Congresswoman, has a restaurant where she, she brags about bringing her guns in to protect her. Well, maybe that's because the gun laws are so weak. We don't need to repeal the Second Amendment to shut down most of the gun sales that produce these horrible tragedies. That's, that's the funny thing. And this is a bipartisan effort to shut down these, these, uh, these, these loopholes, to take on the NRA, to take on what they've been able to do in state legislatures. It doesn't require a far left movement. It there are Republicans, there are actual NRA members who agree with these reforms. We have Lori Labor and Langton today. Um, it's going to be a great show. We have Lori Langton today and Matthew Lawrence, authors of Planet on Fire. It is a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. Then later Piper and Simon are here for our panel. I'm, I'm, I can't tell you, I have debated gun reform for the last 10 years. I have been involved with uh, advocacy organizations in New York in particular. It is, we're on repeat and we have a crisis in our democracy when an organization like the National Rifle Association, who's lockstep with gun manufacturers, and you know the fact that that we've been so beholden after how many shootings, after elementary schools have been shot up, after the country has been in crisis over massive shooting, after after Las Vegas, after massive after 
South Carolina, how many times are we going to have this conversation? The one different thing about this moment is the NRA is weaker. So we have an opportunity now with the Democratic president who's called for these reforms, the Democratic Congress and a Senate. And I understand the filibuster, but we have an opportunity right now to really do something bold. These loopholes are ridiculous. They really are common sense gun legislation. You can still get your gun if you pass a certain threshold and then we take it from there. But the fact that we haven't done anything of impact in the last 15 years, I, I don't know what we are as a country, we're frozen. All right, we'll be right back with our, with our uh, first guests and then later on our panel. guys we are in the midst of march for the book club and our interview with Mackenzie Ward just went up it's a great interview i think we're going to do a little bit of a promo of it um on the show but she is the author of capital is dead is this something worse it's such an easy read and it's like it's actually very entertaining she's very poetic in in, in how she writes um i definitely i mean i'm just trying to see if there's one piece in here where i could give you a little uh maybe not i don't know where it is um Anyways, it's poetic, it's funny, uh, it's it's wonky. I definitely recommend you check out our book club. This is the 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 featured book of the month for the March book club. Of course, there are different book club uh, levels. There is one book a month, there's two books a month, and there's four books a month. Uh, we have a bunch of interviews going up this week. It's going to be exciting. I definitely recommend it. Great interview, great conversation, all about how capitalism is dead or is it on its way out and what is this new form of capitalism i'm gonna guess it's the space that elon musk thinks in at night like he's like thinking what comes after crypto like what's the what's going to be the capital on mars that's that's where they are and they're just dragging us with them and thank god for bernie sanders for calling him out and saying maybe you should think about earth a little bit more doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in nasa i know all the leftists like started you know piling in on him it's just that Elon Musk in particular should be thinking a little bit more about Earth. And, you know, he's, he's given up his possessions, but he has all this money, all this money that he has just scrapped from the government that he supposedly hates so much. All right, so go check out our book club. It is at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Super fun. We've got a lot of books out. We put the uh, calendar up uh, on Instagram. So go check it out over there too. You can see what's coming. All right, we have our first guests here. Do we, do we not? All right. Uh, new book, Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. We have Lori Laburn Langton. Uh, she's a senior research for, fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research and a visiting fellow at the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter. And uh, Matthew Lawrence, uh, he is the founder and director of Commonwealth, a UK-based think tank that, that designs ownership models for a democratic and sustainable economy. Uh, previously, he was a senior senior research fellow also at IPPR. Thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be here. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty late over there, right? Oh, never too late for you. Never too late oh, for you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Already warming me up. All right. So what is... Um, you know, we started off the show from a U.S. perspective. Uh, we had a mass shooting, another mass shooting. We had seven this week, just as just the normal here. And I was talking about how for the last 10 years, we've been debating the same thing, like over and over and over again. Like, how bad does it have to get before we take action? And I feel the same way I think many of us do about climate change. Uh and, you know, what's interesting about uh, your analysis, and I'd love to hear you you explain, is that this is a book, Plan on Fire, Manifesto for the Age of Environmental Breakdown, uh, which calls into question how the political status quo has no answer uh, to the how, how the consequences of the climate emergency are, are uh, dealing with inequities in society. So what, uh, I'll, I'll go to Matthew, I guess, first. It's always tough with two people. Matthew, what was the inspiration behind your book? Why, why now? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, it's interesting you mentioned the shooters, which I think we could come back to because that, that's that we actually have a mass shooting in the book as an example of some of the sort of eco-fascist tendencies that are bubbling up. And, and I know Laurie's uh, got a very well-primed pitch on, on the sort of origins of this. But I think one of the key things for us was 
as you mentioned in the intro, both of us work in sort of UK policy in and around sort of like left-wing or transformative politics uh, in the UK. And at the same time as seeing sort of, you know, um, you know communities in the US campaigning against, you know, sort of uh, oil infrastructures and the rising movement on the streets uh, across the world for both, you know, climate and racial justice, we were sort of then also going into meetings in Whitehall or, you know, where sort of government policymaking is done in the UK or with sort of, you know, political parties. And the gap, the striking gap between the scale of the emergency, the nature of the interconnected emergency, and then sort of not just sort of what was being offered, but even that at the level of analysis of like the recognition of the systemic nature of the crisis was sort of woefully, you know, there was just a sort of really striking, quite dangerous gap. And so our sense there was, you know, this is a chance to try and you know, contribute to a whole range of people who are trying to do this, trying to move forward to the analysis, move forward to the agenda, move forward to the sort of political uh, arguments. But it really was like the origin of was rooted in that like gap between being there in the sort of policy world, trying to sort of work out how we advance transformative agenda, and yet sort of just a real sort of lack of awareness from mainstream institutions that we were trying to influence. I don't know, Laura, if that's a, a fair summary. <laughs> No, it, it is, and, and what we've seen subsequently, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, is this this amazing upswell of campaigning that is really getting to the heart of this problem. Much of it going on in the US, which has been hugely inspiring over here, along with with what we've been uh, getting in Britain as well. But even as the mainstream conceives of this as an unprecedented problem, we still have this huge gap where it can properly understand why this is the case. You know, we've got Emmanuel Macron speaking at, at UN summit saying, oh, we need more, you know, we need to be more ambitious. We need to be, have more courage. We have Bill Gates saying, oh, education is at the heart of it. You know, those things are really important, but there's something deeper going on here. And this is what, it, what we want is to communicate with the book. And if I may, can I, can I give you a, a quick story that we cite at the beginning of the book First. that I think helps us, helps understand this. Um, Easter Island out in the Pacific, uh, Rapa Nui to the indigenous population, has become this kind of way for a lot of people to understand the predicament we're in and what's causing it, right? You had a, an, an island isolated away from many other, you know, the, any kind of human influence for hundreds of years until Europeans arrived, right? And the story goes, they found a civilization that had collapsed, that had created these amazing your head and torso statues that exist on the island, but now a, a, a complete mess. And the mainstream story around this is that um, they unthinkingly destroyed their local environment, committed ecocide by exploiting the trees and cutting them down and then there not being enough food and turn, ultimately turning on each other and there being a civil war. And that feels like a microcosm for what's going on now. So the world is like a, a planet-sized Easter Island in that we are unthinkingly destroying the natural foundations upon which any of this can occur. Now, the problem is with that story, which is very compelling, and I don't know about you, Matt, but when I was younger, I read the books on this and thought, oh, that's such a good way to understand how this is happening. You know, we, our psychology, our short-termism is pushing us to the brink. Gosh, this is so frustrating. But the problem is with the story is it's not true it turns out. What actually happened was that the local population had pretty much managed to live quite well with the limited resources it had on the island and managed them sustainably, often through cultural norms. And then Europeans came and they brought with them smallpox and they brought with them slavery. And they weren't just bringing those things for a laugh, they were bringing them there because they were compelled by an increasingly globalized economic system that meant that they were going all over the world, including into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, to find cheap nature and to find cheap bodies to slave and pour into their process of accumulation that was then leading to profit making. And it's that story that the mainstream is missing. And the fact that the, the false story, the one that talks about selfishness and, and stupidity is the dominant one and not that one, is itself a story of the failings we see at the moment. So, you know, my, my mind automatically goes to these uh, these green campaigns that were devised and funded uh, by oil and gas industries in the late 70s and 80s to put the pressure on the individual. Recycle, uh, you know, do, do certain things in, in your life, you know, to... Uh, even Jimmy Carter, uh, lower your heat, put on a sweater so we can lessen our dependence on oil. Not like you have any power over that. <laughs> um, I mean, these are, but this was very much putting it on the individual rather than 
the whether it's the 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 government, um, the government's role in it, and the government's role within the economic system. Is am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, precisely, exactly. That you know, we we this at the end of the day is to do with huge economic structures that have sway over our lives and therefore how we interact with the environment. Right? You know, it it, it a load of consumers didn't come together after the Second World War and say, do you know what, we need a global aviation industry to jet us around the world because that's our consumer choice. Those things grew up because governments funded them because there were large companies who wanted to make money from it. And the idea that we're going to undo all that history and decarbonize aviation by a few consumers working together to make different choices is both laughable and frankly suicidal. So just to add, it's, it's just important to add. So when we talk about the oil companies, fossil fuel companies, you know, it wasn't just that they were trying to shift this narrative onto like an individualized sort of almost like a political response. It's also that they knew they knew the scale of the crisis. So I think it was there's a document in I think the late seventies from Exxon which predicted literally almost to the sort of uh, exact number the sort of concentration of carbon in the atmosphere this year, and they got it sort of completely spot on. So the, some of the best sort of climate science was taking place in the 60s, in the 70s, in major fossil fuel companies. And again, that goes back to Laurie's point, you know, there is a sort of structural dynamic in fossil capital, but in capitalism as a whole, that drives this expulsive, you know, propulsive logic of expansion, extraction, enclosure, rinse and repeat. And unless we can break that sort of circuit, then, you know, we can expand renewables, we can shift to sort of greener forms of consumption. But if you don't actually break the logic of that underlying mass of, sort of fossil capital, then we're in real trouble. And that's where the sort of individualized approach isn't enough. We need a systemic response to a systemic crisis, really. Um, it, it's interesting, though, because, you know, on the other hand, you have some industries, uh, because the consumer has caught up in the U.S., for instance. Um, you have you have uh, oil and gas companies that are shifting to renewables. You have some companies, uh, you know, fracked gas is 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 being powered off of windmills right now. So there are some industry shifts, but but I'm not a proponent of this. But you're yeah. seeing a little bit of an, inter- an industry shift because of the consumers, which is great for them to champion and campaign on, uh, you know, it's, it's like, well, look at it, it's working. That's, that's sort of how they're lobbying for this, at least in the States. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing to say is that we need both the changes from individual behavior and changes from systems, right? And there will be an element of this in the current makeup of our societies where consumers do have to drive certain changes. And that's very important. And, you know, individual behavior of course matters if you're going pouring chemicals in a river that is absolutely not that you know that's going to have a wide impact as well as your purchasing decisions but the story of how certain sectors certain companies are changing their behavior is partly on the sort of top of the iceberg as it were is partly about consumer decisions but the whole mass underneath is as a result of you know government decisions and policies and directions that they're setting and again it, it it hides away that narrative that is often pushed by those companies hides away the deeper drivers, the government's role in pushing changes to markets that they are then responding to. Right. Um, and it wasn't, for example, just the shock of the pandemic and lower demand for oil that led to the crisis that we've seen in the oil industry over the last year or so. It was also a longer term process of changes that were being made by government policy that was beginning to to shift energy markets across the world. Um, so is there, if there was this much research, what I really haven't been able to understand is if, 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 if Exxon had this such precise research on carbon emissions, wouldn't they know the point of no return? <laughs> Like, I don't, I mean, there's, and that just sounds like basic human understanding, like having empathy, understanding like timelines. I just, that's what I think really doesn't make sense to folks is it's so, so much in front of us. How much more data do lawmakers need? How much, and maybe they're not, you know, climate, they're not researched or well-versed in climate science enough. That's very much the case in the United States, but at least Exxon has a sense, right? So, so, So I think there's two things there. Um, well, there's a number of things there. I think the first is that we know, you know, fairly comprehensively that 
data and alone is, is, is not enough and that politics resides in emotion, in framing, in language, in sort of the composition of, you know, economic and social interests. Um, so we can't, you know, rely on, you know, the terrifying scale of, you know, the climate crisis that is already here for billions of people, but is going to sort of magnify and expand and the environmental sort of um, breakdown that layers on top of the climate crisis. Um, so I think there's that. I think the second thing that sort of makes the sort of political crisis of environmental breakdown. And I think, you know, what we really stress in the book is that the crisis is above all political because we actually do have the technical means, the resources to rapidly decarbonize our economy. The real challenge is in mustering like the political strategy and sort of political power to disembed, you know, the fossil fuel giants, the sort of ways of life that currently sustain unsustainable behaviors. But I think, um, you know, the, the one sort of tensions there is that many of those who are suffering now and will suffer most are those least responsible for how we got him. So to the Exxons or to the sort of, you know, American consumer, as you say, who maybe is picking ship, but nonetheless, for many of those people, even if, you know, environmental breakdown, global heating, increase of superstorms is really affecting and damaging their lives and livelihoods. Nonetheless, it's nowhere near as bad as if you live in Mozambique, if you live in sort of the Niger Delta, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so there is that pushing out, and that's why you know, the climate crisis is a racist crisis, because it sort of um, you know, creates a hierarchy of um, interests, of material needs, of, you know, sort of, of pain almost. And the, ex, you know, the Exxon uh, class, let's, let's call them that, will be most, most likely to be able to shelter much more effectively. You know, we saw that story last year during COVID, or maybe before time seems to have sort of welded together over the uh, COVID crisis, but of all these sort of billionaires buying these bolt holes in New Zealand, and so you can kind of see in that, well, yes, they might say, well, yeah, sure, the world will look pretty bad with a 3.5 degrees rise or a 2 degree rise or indeed a 1.5 degree rise for lots of people. But we'll be able to buy ourselves out of it, we'll be able to shelter ourselves, we'll be able to create a bubble. Um, and so I think there's lots of things going on there that we can't just rely, alone, rely on alone data and empathy, because that's clearly, you know, <laughs> if we've seen over the last 100 years, that's clearly not enough as a political strategy. Well, I mean, even against their bottom line, I, that's what I don't understand is if you're, it's great, great that you're making profits right now, but in 10 years, you're going to be underwater and you're not gonna be able to drill in Libya. You're not going to be able to drill in, in, in these places. I mean, I think one thing just to just to jump in again, and I think um, Andreas Malm's book, Fossil Capital, really goes into this very well. But I think one of the key interesting things here is that, you know, fossil fuels are a stock. They literally sort of decompose energy under the ground, whether it's coal, oil, gas, whereas renewable energy is a flow. It's of wind, it's, you know, sunshine, et cetera, et cetera. And that flow is much harder to control, enclose, and therefore make profits out of it. So actually, you know, even if you've got a bit more flooding in, you know, some of the examples you mentioned or this, that, and the other, controlling the stock of fossil fuels will always be much more profitable, at least in the sort of short to medium term, which is the time horizon that many of these companies operate on, than trying to sort of control the flow of energy. And that's why you see, really, you know, you see very sort of extensive fossil fuel lobby, but you don't really see a sort of nearly the equivalent scale of renewable sort of green lobbying um, in sort of Washington or wherever it might be. And I think it's that sort of the political economy of energy and how it relates to different interests, how it relates to different abilities to sort of make profit or not, I think is one of the key drivers there. One's finite, one is not. Um, so, so when you say you've got these economic systems that need to be addressed, what are some solutions? What can we envision as, I mean, taking on the politics is, is a big, as I, I mentioned with the NRA, I mean, <laughs> been hitting our heads against the wall for, for decades now since these mass shootings have, have blown up um, in this country. The democracy, at least in the United States, is, is decomposing. <laughs> at this point. So if it's just purely political, uh, are there other options? Yeah, I think, so we, we, we explore an array of areas in which we can make change over the course of the book. I, one area that we start off with is looking at what the, the mainstream strategy increasingly looks like it will be, right? So you could say that one of the big stories of this decade is, to put it crudely, neoliberalism is gonna give this a go. And COP26, the big UN climate conference in the UK at the end of this year, could be ground zero for a kind of status quo triumphalism. Everyone back, slaps themselves on the back. You know, Biden's been elected. This is great. America's back. China's signing up to a net zero target and many other countries do at the same time. And 
that the strategy for trying to follow through on those targets, because of course targets don't meet themselves, you could crudely say is, is this, Implement, implementing policies that speed up the market's ability to swap dirty technology, whether they be cars or power plants or whatever, for clean alternatives. And I'm pretty sure that, that that story will seem hugely compelling in the context of a COP that hopefully goes well, where many nations sign up to these net zero targets, the ones that the scientists tell us we need to be abiding to, and in which we start to continue to see this acceleration in energy markets, right? But that strategy could be, I mean, you could say it's the biggest bet in human history because it's, it's not questioning the consumption model at the heart of all of this. And to, to put it simply, do we have enough environmental room, whether that's carbon or bur to burn or biodiversity to, to destroy or make extinct or soil to deplete? Do we have enough of that left to swap all of the dirty stuff for clean stuff, all of the stuff that exists right now, but then also the new stuff that we say we're going to make if we're going to offer a very particular Western American consumption model to everyone on the planet, right? And a lot of people are starting to question that, have questioned it for a long time from communities that have been on the front line of, of the failures of that model for centuries. And an alternative would be to while also swapping dirty for clean, try and create a different model of consumption, a different purpose for the economy that starts to put the other things that we know we should be doing anyway to live better lives more at the forefront of then what we should, what our economy should be doing and creating, you know, more public luxury, shared spaces, the time to spend with your, with your relatives and, and your loved ones, less time at work or better quality work. All of the things, incidentally, that we've better appreciated by being in this pandemic situation, things that we really understand make life worthwhile. And, and I think yeah, I definitely agree with all that. And I think in some ways, the agenda, we can sort of see the contours there. You can see it in the Green New Deal and sort of, you know, you know, the centering of public investment, not sort of to sort of boost profit making, but actually to center sort of life making. So whether that's a care economy, whether that's, as Laurie mentioned, sort of cities which are sort of full of thriving life because you've reclaimed, you know, what is currently private space for sort of shared spaces. It's the building out of and the decommodifications of the removing from markets, sort of the things that we all need to live well and thrive on, because not only is that good for extending freedom, extending sort of the ability for all of us to thrive, giving everyone the resources and capabilities, it's also much lower in terms of its environmental impacts if we sort of pool and scale and democratically steward resources rather than sort of the current consumption model, the current sort of production model um, that Laurie alludes to. And so, you know, in the book, we sort of sketch a whole variety of things and it sort of, you know, goes from everything from the food system through to you know, what does a 21st century commons look like if we sort of stewarded collective resources rather than sort of privatized and closed and extracted them, uh, whether that's data, whether that's the Amazon rainforest. But then we also look at sort of some of the sort of um, the core institutions that sort of drive extraction and environmental um, breakdown. So, you know, for example, one of the ones that, you know, when we talk about the market delivering clean energy, delivering, you know, all the things that, that, that we need in this transition, what we say is it's really important to recognize, and there's a movement in the US of the law and political economy movement, which is kind of you know, at the forefront of this. What we really need to recognize is that there's no sort of apolitical market. There's no like market that will deliver us transition that stands outside of politics. It's actually politics, our institutions, the power that shapes the sort of how those institutions then shape the markets and how we allocate resources through law, through welfare systems, through regulation. Um, that's how that's shaped how markets operate. So we've actually got extraordinary democratic power if we see, choose to use it. And of course, you know, neoliberalism has been about sort of excluding democratic control from markets. But we've got extraordinary power to remake markets. So whether that's rethinking the, sort of the corporation, so as a legal institution, it's sort of centered on meeting environmental and social needs rather than maximizing sort of uh, the wealth of investors whether that's about you know, sort of intellectual property rights around sort of you know, who has access to certain goods or not, and you know, the vaccine IP um, sort of apartheid that we're seeing essentially globally is a good example of why we need to reform that. 
right down sort of you know new forms of green industrial strategy so you know yes we need strategies for how we're going to decarbonize and expand you know green public transport let's say but we also really need to in a context of you know this long downturn of a you know, long stagnation of the last few decades think about centering things like a care economy caring work valuing you know both wage and unwage care work as at the center of what a post-carbon economy would look like. And that will require conscious action. We simply can't you know, expect or will not happen if we just leave that to the market. Uh, where in the world should we be looking right now uh, as a model? Where, where has this transcended politics or is politics really, uh, you know, where, where have the leaders actually caught up to these ideas, which? I think a, a first thing to say um, is that if you, if you, develop a measure, this has been done, if you develop a measure of what countries offer to their population, standard of living, your political voice, all the things that we say would make up a, a good life, and you plot that next to their impacts on the environment, kind of in our minds, it may be that, oh, you know, the more country offers, you know, the more developed that country may be, and then maybe its impacts on the environment won't be as much, right? You know, China's trashing its rivers, whereas here in the UK or the US, you know, we've got clean rivers now. That actually isn't the case. It roughly is a linear relationship in that the, the more you're offering to a population, the more you're destroying the environment. And in that respect, no country can rightly be described as a developed nation. Um, this is work done by, by Kate Rayworth, an academic here in, in the UK, along with some people at a university here. And so no, no country is a, is a developed nation. We're all in many respects developing because we get to provide a kind of a, a standard of living that we would deem as universally desirable while not destroying the environment so the first thing to say is that no one is really doing this properly but constituent elements of it exist out there and before you come in Matt and, and give some of those I'm sure on, on things like ownership and other things like that we are beginning to see countries that are playing around for example uh, with different ideas of what the purpose of the economy is what the objective should be for government policy beyond this focus on maximizing GDP and continual material growth right there's a lot of excitement. Which countries are they? That, so we've got that's, New Zealand. We've got New Zealand who, who passed recently a welfare budget, um, which, which sought to allocate government money, not just to maximise economic growth, but instead to help with well-being, with mental health, things like this. That's being experimented with some other countries as well. They're adopting this, what's called a well-being approach. Uh, Scotland is, is looking into actually a, a part of the UK. Some of the Nordic countries are looking uh, at that as well. And that could be a... This is really important because that, that really begins to shift the logic within government and within policy away from this unremitting focus and narrative around that consumption model. It's not a silver bullet, but it's the beginning of something. And then, Matt, yeah, we've, we've got, there are other countries around the world, right, that are experimenting with different ways to run their economic system that help. Yeah, I mean, so I guess two two examples are on different scales. So I think one example um, was Lula and Dilma in Brazil's management of the rainforest, the Amazon uh, rainforest, where they did a whole series of things around, you know, really strengthening um, indigenous communities that live in so the rainforest, their rights to steward and nurture and protect the forests. You know, sort of stopped, uh, you know, limited the right of loggers, miners, you know, uh, ranchers to burn and exploit the rainforest. And actually, saw you really saw for the first time ever, really, this like new model of stewardship of a common resource. You know, the, the sort of the rainforest didn't just stop deforesting; it actually sort of began reforesting. And Brazil really is the front line in many ways and sort of emblematizes a lot of these trends because in Bolsonaro, you have obviously like someone who embodies like the far right, you know, sort of pro-fossil fuel, you know, violence towards indigenous communities, you know, very racialized view of the world um, in, in his approach. And we see that with the burning of the Amazon and the rapid re-acceleration of deforestation. So I think that model, and I think therefore like um, Lula's potential sort of presidential campaign is like one to watch, but also a model of how to manage um, you know, natural systems in a way that you know, can br bring them back into line with sort of healthy wider ecologies. And then on a more sort of like granular level, I think, and someone like Mike Davis in the US has written about this uh, in some of his work, but the city as this sort of, you know, both intensely like environmentally unstable in some ways in terms of consumption levels, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, could really be the incubator of sort of post-carbon luxury, you know, whether that's 
green public transport systems, whether that's shared amenities that we've been talking about, whether that's sort of you know, the provision of public goods as sort of you know right as sort of a residence, so free broadband access, you know, sort of decommod, you know, like rental controls on sort of you know decarbonized housing stock. The city as an experiment for the future and an incubator of the future, and this is sort of the vanguard of the post, you know, post-carbon movement. And you can see that in places like Barcelona, where they're sort of, you know, remaking the city to kind of reclaim it from sort of the private control of the motor vehicle. You can see it in, you know, London, where they're sort of really expanding out sort of the zones where you can sort of, um, or limiting where you can drive, but also expanding out sort of, you know, environmental controls around air pollution, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can see it in a whole host um, of, of cities. And I think so those combinations of like these real front lines uh, of, you know, the sort of environmental and climate struggle and where they can join with economic and environmental justice and places like Brazil as an example. But then also I think, you know, cities would be a real sort of uh, one to watch in terms of that experimentation. Oh my God, I have so many more questions. Uh, <laughs> well, and and the state cities are run by Democrats, so there's actually a more feasible path to, to victory, even, you know, in progressive cities like New York. Um, if you can take on big industries like real estate and uh, and the police, I mean those are the two that are are really preventing everything, and they have a stranglehold on our uh, our city's lawmakers, even the progressive ones. So mm. I'm sure it's very similar with 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 uh, other you know London in particular. I think has some of the same obstacles that New York faces, but uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Lori Liburn, uh, Laburn, excuse me, and Matthew Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. I so many more questions. Hope to have you back on. We can talk more. Um, unfortunately, we're an hour show, but go check out their new book, Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. You can go check it out at Verso Books. Verso Books, a partner for our book hub, book club, uh, as well as Haymarket. So go check it out at versobooks.com. Thank you too. Thanks a lot. Appreciate your work. Bye. All right, we will be right back with Simon and Piper for today's news and our panel. Lots of news today. Oh, boy. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. All right, we have our Tuesday panel. Simon Rode is a socialist writer and he is a producer here at the Nomi Key Show. And Piper Winkler is the co-chair founder of Harvard DSA as YDSA, DSA? I think it's DSA, uh, as well as a producer over here as well at the Nomi Key Show. So um, another mass shooting, I think, I don't think people really understand how often, I mean, yes, we see them in the news when they're, um, you know, out, Outside of the normal, I'm saying this from a perspective of outside of the normal news events of mass shootings, because mass shootings do happen regularly. We've had seven in the last week. And I'm not talking about mass shootings where it's over two people. I'm talking about, in some instances, three, four, five, six people. Um, this one uh, last night, of course, was in Boulder at a grocery store. And we are on a hamster wheel in this country. Um, hamster wheel debate over many issues that uh, just doesn't make sense to most most Americans, majority of Americans, even gun owners uh, who want you know sensible gun laws, um, climate change, of course. Uh, you know we we are having the same conversations over and over, and then you hear Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, he at a hearing on gun violence. This is who he had to blame. Let's play that clip. There has been extended, systematic attacks on our police and law enforcement professionals for years, calling them racist and bigoted and prejudiced, demanding that they be defunded and replaced with social workers. When you condemn the police, when you make it harder to do their job, you shouldn't be surprised that criminals take advantage of the opportunities that follow and that crime rises and that in particular violent crime rises. Likewise, some on the left like to complain about mass incarceration. This guy, man, this guy, wow. Uh, first off, he got part of defund the police, right? Finally, someone said, and replace them with social workers. Social workers are gonna cause so much crime storming homes and not murdering women sitting in their bed who piper <laughs> yeah it's i mean 
it should come as no surprise that this is such an off-base answer. But I'm listening to this and you know, realizing that, of course, Tom Cotton is leaving a, a huge part out of the picture. Just a few days, I think it was five days before this mass shooting, the NRA successfully shot down um, a ban on assault weapons in Boulder celebrated this and then while details about the mass shooting were coming out were coming out the NRA uh, was tweeting uh, the the text of the second amendment so there's this sense that obviously the right has, has coalesced around that what's going to solve everything is arming police officers when we know the brutality uh, the racism that informs uh, the the way that police officers then use those weapons and cause people to feel unsafe in their own communities this is a totally unsatisfactory answer from tom tom cotton that that really misses the point that obviously um the the failure of well i guess more importantly even the the power of the nra the power of the gun lobby and the, the failure to recognize and acknowledge the fact that these kinds of weapons are have no place in our community you know that's really what i think is more important to focus on when talking about the story of, of what's unfolded here you know there's this there's this um debate that often comes up on on conservative media or even actually cnn as well where i i used to find myself debating um you know the good guy with the gun situation right and the fbi itself has released statistics saying you know, it is more viable for you to throw an object like a chair or or whatever that's, you know, in front of glasses at a shooter than it is for you to pull out a gun because even law enforcement scored incredibly low in times of, in, of stress hitting a target because there's a million things going, your brain is stressed out, you know, you might, so they advise against it even with law enforcement which is incredible to me. The fact that these talking points can exist in the law enforcement community and then get lost because the NRA, who is now going bankrupt, thank goodness, um, has this power. I mean, what they do is they go and they lobby Tom Cotton. They lobby Ted Cruz. Um, Simon, I, before we get to you, can I just play the Ted Cruz clip? Because it's, it's, it's similar. So let's play Ted Cruz at this, uh, at this hearing. And every time there's a shooting, we play this ridiculous theater where this committee gets together and proposes a bunch of laws that would do nothing to stop these murders. Senator from Connecticut just said the folks on the other side of the aisle have no solutions. Well, the senator from Connecticut knows that is false. And he knows that's false because Senator Grassley and I together introduced legislation, Grassley-Cruz, targeted at violent criminals, targeted at felons, targeted at fugitives, targeted at those with serious mental disease, to stop them from getting firearms, to put them in prison when they try to illegally buy guns. What happens in this committee after every mass shooting is Democrats propose taking away guns from law-abiding citizens, because that's their political objective. But what they propose, not only does it not reduce crime, it makes it worse. I mean, Simon, this is this is like some level of spin. I mean, we've seen a lot of spin come from them before and, and there, none of these guys who stormed uh, these in the last week, at least uh, the, the, the massage parlor um, slaughter or the one at the grocery store, they bought their, they bought their guns legally and they did not have a criminal record. So which criminals are they talking about? Right, exactly. And it, it's, it's so typical to see these conservatives um, you know, um, clutch their pearls when it comes to like conversations around gun control, and yet they'll also so quickly defend these terribly violent institutions like um, police and prisons, as Tom Cotton did, like in the same breath, right? Um, and I'm so glad that Piper talked about the violence that police do when they have access to these guns. And I, I guess in <clears throat> Along those lines, it's worth noting that not all leftists uh, are in favor of gun control legislation that so frequently ignores the main purveyors of gun violence, which are the military and the police, uh, particularly the United States military and police. Um, and, you know, the, there, there's a conversation to be had about, like, you know, does, um, you know, why are politicians so quick to get, um, to put control around citizens buying guns where you know they're not going to do 
anything at all when there's like a shooting from police. Um, they won't do anything to, to get guns out of the hands of police officers um, or to defund or demilitarize police departments. They want to get hands out of uh, guns out of the hands of people of color. Let's be very clear. There have been Michael Bloomberg, this big advocate for gun reform, you know, had a buyback program in New York, specifically in communities of color. Um, you know, it's 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 they're fine with some people having the guns, white people, white guys, police, uh, uh, people who who, you know, whether it's in the, the, the prison system, um, they've no problem with that. They have a lot of problem with people legally buying guns. And even when they do legally they get pulled over and get killed, as we know with Fernando Castile or, or so many others who've experienced this. Um, that's the hearing I want to see. The hearing, the, the you know, you want to talk about gun legislation in a re reasonable way and we want to talk about criminals? Great, let's talk about this. Let's have a reasonable conversation about the racism that exists, has been reported on, is being investigated in police forces across this country and we're arming these people simultaneously going after unarmed black men and women and people of color or undocumented people. I mean, the list could go on and on who may have legal guns, may not even be armed. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Your idea of a criminal is not what is actually criminal. I'm, I'm so sick of this debate. I'm sorry, guys. It's just like, you know. It's really yeah, and it, I, I, same as you, I like want to have a hearing where we actually talk about all of the violence that occurs in this country, especially along the lines of race and gender and class, and um, how a lot of that violence, some of it's done with guns, and a lot, and most of the time, um, it's done at the hands of the state. Um, and so, you know, we got to really look at the sources of violence and, and make sure that our legislation and the conversations that we're having around it uh, are addressing that. Not to mention the data, you know, the NRA 15, 20 years ago lobbied to remove the, the efforts to collect accurate data. You know, most of the non-state level gun violence is from suicides, which is a mental health, health crisis, which of course Medicare for all would be a great solution for, right? Um, you know, there's so many, and, and, and after the pandemic, I imagine it's going to be worse or it has been worse, but they're also not measuring the violence that, that police have inflicted. How many shootings that police uh, have inflicted on, on, on people in this country? All right, so related, uh, we have a crisis at the border. I use the word crisis because it is a crisis because for the last 20 years, we have manned up, militarized the border. Uh, we have, in the last administration, had a zero tolerance policy where um, we basically you know, it became even more of a humanitarian crisis due to uh, cri other crises in Central America, foreign policy in Central America. So we all know what's happening at the border. Uh, biggest surge of, of um, folks being detained in the last 20 years. This was a huge deal uh, back when like Pat Buchanan uh, was talking about building a border wall in, in the Clinton years, uh, going into the George W. Bush years. So here we are, let's show some photos of what's the current state. These are from CBS News. Um, these are the detention centers. Uh, we've seen photos like this before during the Trump years. In the last couple of years, the Biden administration is reluctant to call this a crisis. Uh, they probably appropriately blame Donald Trump for exacerbating the situation. Uh, on day one, you know, I'll give credit where credit is due. President uh, Biden did acknowledge that you know they were going to allow unaccompanied minors uh, cross the border. They acknowledged that they were going to have to improve. The facilities and amp up, you know, funding. They proposed an immigration bill, which is, you know, pretty decent, I'd say, uh, to Congress. But it's not happening fast enough. And Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, acknowledged this crisis as if they didn't know it existed before they entered office. Um, Piper, I'll start with you. I mean, what could defund ICE? Yes. But there's, th th this is so broken that th the crisis can't keep up with any sort of even immediate changes. Like, like what could be done? Yeah, I mean, I have obviously, I think one of the big hallmarks of Biden's presidency so far has been him making these intermittent statements like, we need to act on this. This is what he said in the wake of the Boulder shootings. And I completely agree that that, you know, creating a, a safer community for people while of course not fully funding the police uh, rather than defunding them. That's not the move that should be made. 
Um, but we need to act being said about things like, uh, you know, raising the minimum wage and then that not happening. Biden isn't saying we need to act here. Um, and it's extremely concerning. I think nothing can really express my rage. Uh, for example, at hearing people say that the Biden administration is housing people in these facilities, which are clearly not meant for human habitation. Um, and the fact that the Biden administration is now overseeing the greatest number of human beings detained in these centers is obviously something that any president with any kind of moral foundation would immediately say, uh, we need to act about this. But Biden's not going to say that because you know, for his presidency so far and really for his time in power, he has constantly been backing up those kinds of programs of deportation um, and creating situations where human beings are considered illegal. I mean, he literally said, stay home. I'm sorry, why do you think people are, they're risking their lives, they're leaving their countries, Guatemala, Honduras, we know, Nicaragua, we know the humanitarian crises happening. Then Mexico put a stop, I mean, every step of the way, they're putting their lives at risk. And it cost them thousands of dollars with coyotes to go across the, we know these stories. You think that if people had a choice to stay home, they, they wouldn't? I don't understand how he could, in 2021, as an effing Democratic president, say that. Stay home. Simon, sorry. It's a day where I'm losing my mind. Yeah, no, I feel the same way that you do. It's, it's, it's enraging. I mean, it's just like, you can't look at those pictures and feel like they're not being treated like people, right? Like, you, you, you don't acknowledge someone's humanity and then put them in those conditions. Um, it's 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 heartbreaking and and it's really frustrating to see politicians act like this isn't a crisis when they were calling it a crisis during their campaign right like i mean kamala harris went to some of these detention facilities and was like this is awful this is we need to do something about this and was able to use that to make get political points or something and then um you know now she's it's you know running the country with joe biden and reopening those same facilities that she was standing outside of um, it is a tremendous crisis, and I would love to see it stop happening around these conversations of like very partisan conversations of like, ah, the Republicans are doing this to people, or and then the Republicans being like, oh, look at the Democrats, what they're doing to people, they're hypocrites, rather than just like, hey, can we just like start treating people like humans and acknowledge a crisis when we see it? I mean, even Henry Quaylar is, is sending pictures, and he's you know, he voted, he was the only Democrat to vote against the PRO Act. So let's put that in perspective uh, in the House. I, it, it's, it's incredibly frustrating when even Bush administration uh, officials are saying things like, well, you know, the solution would be to uh, find proper housing, but we don't have the money for that. <laughs> Everybody rolls their eyes. Does anybody buy the That's what I'm plenty of money for military weapons, plenty of money for things that don't influence the well-being of people here? Someone should start a business uh, to house, I'm sure this exists, to help with the logistics and housing of, of folks who've been detained or who need to be reunited with their family members here or, or bringing them in from elsewhere. Someone should come up with a for-profit model to that. And if only Dolly Parton could invest in that <laughs> since she invested in the Moderna vaccine. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, yeah, Dolly Parton reference. Or Elon Musk, maybe you build an effing spaceship to how beautiful spaceship to house, oh my God, I don't even know. Wait for the capitalists to save us. I, yeah, I don't know how capitalists work. A profit motive involved, nothing good is ever gonna, gonna come with it. Of course, of course, I know. I'm just <laughs> coming up with a short-term um, analysis. All right, let's, uh, before we wrap, I want to talk about the filibuster because it's on the table right now. People are being lobbied uh, essentially because everything's being held up by the filibuster or Joe Biden, uh, not doing anything. So let's, uh, let's, let's, Mitch McConnell has some thoughts on the filibuster. Shocker. About a year ago, former President Obama launched a new coordinated and very obvious campaign to get liberals <laughs> repeating the claim that the Senate rules are somehow a relic of racism and bigotry. <laughs> it's a campaign, guys. It's not in history at all. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, there's truly so many different examples to pull out and point to here, you know, including the fact that in hearings in Congress that we've even listened to, you know, during this during this very episode, the fact that 
white supremacist and misogynistic um, murders that have just taken place in the past week, you know, are not uh, ample concern uh, to enact gun reform and uh, to enact other policies that will that will keep people safe and to to fight for racial justice. I mean, there's really, really so much to point to here, but you know, episode 4000 of Mitch McConnell is not your friend. <laughs> In the latest episode of Mitch McConnell is yeah. ruining our country. <laughs> Simon. Yeah. I don't know what else do you say about it, right? I feel I like mean, if, like if you're in the Senate, and you especially if you've been in the Senate for as long as you have, you have to know something about the history of the country and the history of the Senate and the history of the United States government and its uh, legacy of, of white supremacy and, and how that has infiltrated every single facet of our government. Um, so you I would have to, he, he's listened to Democrats speak. He's listened to progressives speak. I mean, this is the amazing thing is they pretend like they don't. There are definitely Republicans who live in little bubbles, information bubbles, most of America um, that's Republican. But they're very aware of what the opposition saying and the reason. And they're presented the facts and they're lobbied. So there you go. Yeah. Um, all right, Simon. Go, go ahead, Simon. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, like the filibuster's got to go, uh, but I think it's going to be a bit of a challenge. I mean, I remember even Bernie Sanders was was talking about not wanting to abolish the filibuster uh, during his primary campaign, which always confused me a little bit. Um, but then there's a separate question of like, well, after we abolish the filibuster, it, it's it's more than the filibuster is not the only problem with us getting through the legislation we want. Like we've seen just recently with the $15 minimum wage, like when we can pass it through budget reconciliation, we still can't. So we just can't get enough Democrats on board. So we've got more hurdles to climb, but the filibuster is the first. We need to challenge uh, Mansion and Cinema and whoever is going to be next in line because you know that another one's going to flip. There's always one. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. That's what it is. All right. Piper Winkler, Simon Road, thank you for joining us this Tuesday. Looking forward to seeing you next time. And I'm going to do some shout outs with everybody else. Uh, we have Sam Talarico, Anna Rage and Omiki Rage are my favorite rage. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm Greek. She's Armenian and I'm Greek. It's like part of our DNA. Uh, Mr. Quimper subscribed at tier one on Twitch and is currently on a three month subscription streak. Thank you so much, Mr. Quimper. Uh, before the cause, sending some love, having recently flown in from MR, as I often do, and zowie, are my arms tired? I appreciate the pre-show feed. Majority report, that's very funny. Biped Snake says, I'm waiting for the delivery of my first order from Sunset Lake. I have it next to me because I don't, I don't know if this is from my vaccine because it's not supposed to hit you the first dose, but um, feeling like a little... Just like a, just, I felt a little off immediately. They said sometimes you can have a reaction, like a slight reaction. My arm doesn't hurt yet, knock on wood. So I put some CBD in, into my uh, water here, and maybe it's helped me out. So go check out Sunset Lake CBD. All right, who else do we have here? Uh, and Kosin, no, send some love, Nomiki. So Alfred McCoy has a new book coming out in October to govern the globe, world orders and catastrophic change. You should definitely have him on to talk about it and his previous book. Thank you for the suggestion. I'll put that down. Let me write that down right now. So I don't forget. Alfred McCoy. Jay Manuel sends love. Thank you, Jay Manuel. And Northern Lights uh, also sends some love. And Torches and pit Pitchforks sends love. And Stimmy, 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 yeah, Stimmy, yay, Stimmy, yay. Give me the check so I can give it away. I feel like I'm not saying that right, Torches and Pitchforks. Stimmy, Stimmy, yeah, Stimmy, yeah. Wait, Stimmy, Stimmy, yeah, Stimmy, yeah, Stimmy, yay. Give me the check so I can give it away. Did I get that right? Is that a time? <laughs> Dorsey says nice. <laughs> um, Kyla Rosado says, do you think a fiction book about the charting, about charting the course of climate change via nonlinear vignette style would be good and influential in shifting the profit motive culture for those fossil fuel execs, like for the nonlinear vignette style on the climate fiction moving between the present and the impeding apocalypse, constantly switching over and over? Thoughtful. I think the... I don't know. I mean, the one the question I didn't have for I, I didn't ask what they touched on is just everything is so, you know, in those North countries that are shifting their economic models, um, and New Zealand, who has a socialist head of state, they're not tethered to this short term, um, you know, Wall Street like markets driven. Everything is market driven here, and. I think that just eats away at every single institution, every single aspect of our economy, not to mention also campaign finance, uh, same thing. It's, it's, it's so short term. And I think, 
you know, that's one thing that we have to start having bigger conversations about is how do we chip away at that, the short-term profit-driven model um, in our country and in Japan, uh, in, in, in the EU. I mean, tethering it to the stock market uh, is, which is, of course, not indicative of any sort of real economic change happening. Kowalski from Nebraska says, it is flooding here again. Ugh, climate change can't be stopped till we have lab-grown meat to free up the land for this large-scale carbon sequester programs. We have tech to do this. Now we will just lack the will. Yes, we just lack the will all around. A difficult truth. Is Nomiki going to say poggers? Poggers! Pogger! Pogger! <laughs> all right. Uh, is that everything? No, we don't. We have some more. Okay. Yes, those are all the shout-outs on on in that space. Professor Harvey K is mixing it up in the live chats on Twitch and YouTube. Thank you for joining us. We have a clip we're going to share with you tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to make sure to do that. We didn't get to it today. And big thank you to Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms. And of course, our YouTube moderators, Bob C, Choke in the Orb, and Chuck Diesel, keeping the space troll free. And over on Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Dorsey's favorite, not that we have favorites, and our means a nug wrangler. Thank you guys so much. We will see you tomorrow. Stay in solidarity. Mm-hmm.